A warning, this episode features dramatizations of sacrifice and graphic violence, as well as discussions of sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised, especially for listeners under 13. Something to note, the story you're about to hear is not a direct retelling of any single myth about St. George and the Dragon. Today's episode combines elements from a number of legends and stories about this legendary saint and the dragon he slew for dramatic effect. Hi, I'm Vanessa Richardson, and you're listening to Mythical Monsters, a ParCast original. Every week, we tell stories about the creatures that have fascinated humanity for centuries. We created these fantastical animals in order to deal with deep-rooted anxieties about the world around us. In analyzing these ancient tales, we hope to gain a better understanding of the timeless fears they represent. This week, we're talking about an almost universal mythical monster. There are countless stories about dragons in cultures all over the world. China, in particular, has a rich tradition of dragon lore, and maybe we'll go into it in another episode. But today, we're going to look at one specific story from the European dragon tradition. This story is known as the Tale of St. George and the Dragon. It defined the archetype of the European dragon, creating a villain that was not just a physical threat, but the embodiment of evil itself. New episodes of Mythical Monsters come out every week. They're available for free on Spotify. Coming up, we'll dive into the early history of dragons. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. There's a new class of blockbuster drugs. Drugs like Ozempic. They're changing bodies. And all of a sudden, just the weight starts falling off. Fortunes. It just got too expensive. They're just bank breakers. And industries. There was a lot of excitement. There was a lot of skepticism. The impact of these drugs from business to health is just beginning. From the journal, Trillion Dollar Shot. Find it in the journal feed wherever you get your podcasts. It feels like we're all being told to go on this diet, take that supplement. Ozempic will give you depression, but you know what'll cure that? Weed. Or you could try to balance your hormones. At Science Versus, we're like, what the f*** is going on? Forget the crap online and listen to Science Versus. Just the facts. Oh, and a bunch of stupid jokes. What is a ghost's favorite fruit? Booberries. That's Science VS. New season out on Spotify soon. Jocasta's stomach churned as the wooden carriage dipped and rolled over the rocky hillside. It was dark in the cart. Heavy leather curtains blocked out most of the light, and Jocasta could barely see the hand in front of her own face. 
That morning, her father had told her that she was going on a trip. She'd asked what he was talking about, but all he would say was that she should consider it a great honor to serve her people. She'd wanted to fetch some clothes and food for the journey, but her father had said there was no need. He'd assured her that the soldiers would provide for her on the journey, and where she was going, she would want for nothing. Then he had guided her out to the road where four guards flanked a covered wagon. One of them had pulled aside the leather curtain and Jocasta stepped inside. Her father had looked at her sadly and said, don't worry, everything will be all right. Just do as they say and don't look outside the carriage. She wanted to believe him, but the tears in his eyes let her know that something was very wrong. His tear-streaked face was the last thing she saw before the curtain closed and the wagon began its journey. Several hours later, the carriage came to a halt. One of the soldiers tore aside the curtain and pulled her out. They had stopped at the bottom of a deep ravine. Behind her, the road stretched up toward a fertile green plain. But down here, there was only dust and rocks. It looked as if trees had once dotted the landscape, but the only foliage that remained was charred and barren. Jocasta noticed a glint of white among the blackened wood, and a chill went up her spine. The ravine was scattered with bleached bones. Here and there, she could see scraps of gristle and sinew. Sitting next to one of the boulders, she spotted what appeared to be human hair attached to a bit of dried scalp. Jocasta's heart was suddenly racing. She glanced around frantically. She didn't understand what was happening. Then she saw the large stake set into the ground. It was set in front of the mouth of an enormous cave. Suddenly, everything made sense. The soldiers pulled her toward the metal pole. She fought against them, screaming and biting, but it was too late for resistance. The soldiers were too practiced at their work. They tied her to the pole and then leapt into the carriage. As they rode up and out of the ravine, she shouted after them, Cowards, it should be you down here. Jocasta tried to wriggle out of the ropes, but it was no use. She should have seen this coming. They had sacrificed goats and sheep at first, but it was never enough. The king had begun to send thieves and murderers to die in this valley, but there were only so many of those. Now the sacrifices were innocents. Jocasta peered into the yawning mouth of the cave. At first, she could see nothing. Then, two glowing gold pinpricks glinted from the depths of the cave. She heard a low rumble. The pinpricks grew larger, and Jocasta saw that they were eyes. The irises were rings of golden fire, and the pupils were blood-red slits. Finally, the creature emerged. 
The beast's head was as large as the cart she had rode in on. Spikes of bone fanned out around its face like feathers. Its scales glinted with a metallic sheen. They were a thousand different colors, brilliant greens, deep blues, and violent reds. The dragon spread its wings and roared. The sound was like the shriek of two iron chains being scraped across each other. As it opened its mouth, Jocasta caught sight of three rows of pointed teeth. For a moment, her heart stopped beating and she felt like she couldn't breathe. The sulfurous scent of brimstone filled her nostrils and her screams were lost in the roar of the flames. Western dragons are usually described as having bat-like wings, reptilian bodies, and the ability to breathe fire. But the earliest iterations of the dragon possessed none of these traits. They were portrayed in art and writing as gigantic, snake-like creatures. But these early dragons were defined less by what they looked like and more by what they represented. It makes sense that the storytellers of the ancient world would pick serpents to embody the threat of the dragon. According to the World Health Organization, snakes represent some of the deadliest animal species in the world. Even in the modern world, snakes can kill as many as 138,000 people annually, far more than larger predators like lions or tigers. Before anti-venoms and emergency services, that number would have been even higher. To a farmer in the ancient world, snakes represented a very real threat. They were creatures of inherent violence. When you spotted one, the only solution was to kill it before it killed you. One of the early dragon ancestors was the ancient Mesopotamian goddess Tiamat. A primordial goddess with links to chaos and the sea, Tiamat was the original mother of dragons. In preparation for her battle against the storm god Marduk, she gives birth to a dragon, a lion demon, a scorpion man, and a whole host of other unpleasant creatures. She even turns herself into a gigantic serpent. What establishes Tiamat as one of the first dragons is not her transformation into a reptile, but the fight that comes after it. Tiamat's violent rage represents a threat to all of humanity. Though Marduk is a storm god, his role in the ancient Babylonian cosmology is that of a supreme ruler who meets out justice and structures society. The struggle between him and Tiamat is a battle between forces of order and chaos. Somewhat similar battles occur throughout mythology, between the god Apollo and the dragon Python, between Jason and the Colchian dragon, between Heracles and the multi-headed Hydra. These stories established the Western concept of a classical hero, men of almost superhuman skill, usually chosen by the circumstances of their birth. They're noble figures who must overcome a series of trials, and usually one of those trials was to slay an enormous serpent. The hero and the dragon are inexorably intertwined. Without a dragon to slay, a hero is just a man. And without a hero to devour, a dragon is just a big snake. 
The dragons of the ancient world weren't plotting against humankind or working towards any kind of end goal. Like the snakes that inspired them, these ancient dragons were simply acting according to their nature. The heroes who faced them had grand goals. They were trying to restore order to their world, to do away with the monsters who threatened humanity. But the monsters themselves? Many were just looking to feed. Cleolinda wished her father wasn't so stubborn. King Jugurtha strode through the grand columns that flanked the entrance to the royal villa, Cleolinda close behind him. As the amphitheater drew ever closer, she tried another argument, hoping this one might appeal to his judgment, if not his morality. Father, please, the sacrifices can't go on forever. Sooner or later, the victim is going to be someone this city can't afford to lose. Her father sighed wearily as he repeated the same thing he had told her a hundred times before. Cleolinda, this is the only way. If we don't appease the dragon, it will burn the village to the ground. Would you rather we all die? Cleolinda shook her head tearfully and replied, you could fight, send messengers to the Senate. Rome has to show some responsibility for its colonies. They will send troops to defeat the dragon if we ask them to. I know they will. King Jugurtha looked sadly at his daughter and said, Someday, I hope you will understand that this is the lesser of two evils. Cleolinda stared at him as he made his way up the steps. She'd promised herself that she would try arguing with him one more time, but it was clear that he would not be dissuaded. Cleo would have to take matters into her own hands. Cleolinda used a side door to slip into the network of tunnels that ran under the amphitheater. As she made her way toward the stage, she gripped the calfskin bag that hung around her waist. It rattled with her every move, and she hoped the sound did not betray her. She opened a trap door and climbed up to the area behind the stage's ornate edifice. On feast days, the amphitheater teemed with people, but today only 14 council members would be allowed in. Cleolinda peeked out from behind one of the ornate Corinthian columns. She could see her father standing in an aisle and chatting with a council member who had arrived early. Now was her chance. Her eyes fixed on a large clay amphora in the center of the stage. She darted up to it and dragged it back into the wings as quietly as she could manage. The vessel was filled with tiles. Cleolinda poured them out onto the floor and filled the amphora with tiles from her bag. Then she replaced the amphora and hid herself behind one of the upstage statues. She had spent countless hours creating the set of fake tiles. They looked exactly like the real ones, but instead of having the name of every citizen in town, each of these tiles bore the same name the name of someone the king could not afford to lose. If the ruse was successful, Cleolinda's father would never go through with this month's sacrifice. He would have to find another way to deal with the dragon. Cleolinda watched as the men made their way down to the stage. 
Her heart pounded as her father stepped up to the amphora. He reached in, and for a moment, Cleolinda didn't breathe. King Jagurtha pulled out a tile, and his face went white. In a trembling voice, the king read out the name scratched into the piece of clay. Cleolinda. When we return, Cleolinda finds that there are consequences to her trick. Hey listeners, I want to take a quick moment to introduce you to the newest ParCast original on the block. It's called Incredible Feats, and it's a short weekday show hosted by comedian Dan Cummins. Every weekday, Dan shares a true account of physical strength, mental focus, or genuine bizarre behavior, going behind the scenes and into the achievements of world-class athletes like Dean Carnassus, who once ran for nearly 81 hours without stopping, and performance artists like Lucky Diamond Rich, who boasts layers of tattoos in the most unlikely places, and even everyday people thrown into extraordinary circumstances, like Juliana Kopka, who was forced to survive alone in a rainforest for 11 days. Incredible Feats is offbeat entertainment that's sometimes weird, sometimes wonderful, and always surprising. New episodes air daily, Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. Cleolinda bit her nails as she paced back and forth across the tiled courtyard of her father's royal villa. Less than an hour ago, her father had selected her name to be the dragon's next victim. It was one thing to sacrifice peasants and poor villagers, but it was quite another to send the king's daughter to certain death. Now that she'd been chosen as the dragon's victim, her father would be forced to go to the Senate and beg for help. At least, that was what she'd thought when she'd rigged the voting system to ensure that she was chosen. Now, though, she wasn't so sure. Her father had seemed distraught when he'd pulled her name out of the amphora, but the other council members hadn't seemed bothered at all. She'd slipped away early in the discussion, but she hadn't heard her father say anything in her defense, and that worried her. She had put her own name in because she knew that her father loved her more than anything else in the world. She thought that if her name was picked, he would be forced to dismantle the system. But what if he couldn't? Or worse, what if he wouldn't? Cleolinda spat out a fingernail and looked up as she heard her father's footsteps in the tiled entryway. He came into the courtyard and collapsed wearily onto one of the stone benches. Cleolinda sat down next to him. She tried to sound casual as she asked, How was the council meeting? King Jagurtha looked up at his daughter with tears in his eyes, and her heart sank. He replied, It's you, Cleo. 
This month, the sacrifice is to be you. Cleolinda felt as if he'd struck her across the face. He was going to go through with it? He wanted to go through with it? She shook her head and said, No, that's not right. I'm the king's daughter. You are the king. Go to the Romans. Tell them to send an army. I put my name in that amphora so that you would end this. Her father stood up. For a moment, he just stared at her with a look of pain and anger that made her heart ache. Then he cried out, You fool! Don't you think I've been to Rome? I pleaded with the Senate. I offered everything I had. Rome is failing. They have barely enough troops to defend their own cities, let alone a distant colony like ours. You have meddled in things you knew nothing about, and now we will all pay for it. You most of all. With that, her father broke down into sobs. Cleolinda stared down at the tiled floor of the courtyard. The horrible truth settled on her. She had signed her own death warrant. Early dragon stories focused on the role of the hero, but as dragons moved from the villas of ancient Greece into the stone castles of medieval Europe, a new character was added. The virtuous maidens who appear in the tales of the late Middle Ages would eventually take on as much importance as the heroes themselves. Before the creation of the virtuous maiden archetype, the women in dragon tales had roles that were more varied and diverse. In the tale of Jason and Colchis, the woman, who was meant to marry Jason, also plays the role of his sidekick. In the story of Tiamat and Marduk, the dragon herself is female, and in many more stories there are no women at all. It doesn't appear to be until the dragon enters Christian mythology that women are relegated to the role of a victim. The idea of women as victims comes partly from the medieval conception of Satan. Many early Christian texts presented the devil as a serpent, and it follows that the dragons of Greek and Roman mythology would also come to symbolize the king of hell. With their snake-like bodies and inherently predatory natures, these mythological creatures are the perfect representation of Lucifer. As dragons became more firmly entrenched as symbols of the devil, they began to take on increasingly demonic traits. It was not until after the dragon's incorporation into Christian dogma that the creatures typically gained the ability to breathe fire, or appeared with the bat-like wings that are often seen in depictions of Lucifer. Dragons became symbols of sin and corruption. In particular, the sin of greed becomes a part of the dragon mythology, with dragons often hoarding gold in underground lairs. The sin that's most relevant to George's story, though, is lust. When medieval dragons devoured virgin maidens, the encounters were often sexualized in a way that implied the dragon would not only take away her life, but also her virtue. In the story of Saint Margaret, a young woman is tortured by a Roman official who wants to take her virginity. While she waits in her jail cell, she's swallowed up by a demon in the form of a dragon, a fairly clear metaphor for sexual assault. In one 19th century collection of British folklore, an attack by a dragon is described as less ravenous than amorous. And in the story of St. George, the maiden is dressed as a bride when she's presented as a sacrifice 
to the dragon. Medieval Christianity saw a woman's virginity as the most sacred treasure. When a dragon attacks a virgin, it represents the ultimate defilement, pure evil subsuming pure goodness. George took the road through the mountains to avoid being seen. It was a lonely path, since the citizens of the mud-drenched backwater of Silene were convinced that a dragon lived in these hills. They were simple-minded folk, but that wasn't why he avoided them. It was the same wherever the empire sent him. When people saw a Roman soldier, they wanted to know what he could do for them. There were leaks to be fixed in the local cistern, bandits on the road outside of town, or cracks in bridges that had been built long ago. None of it was anything he could help with. The Roman Empire had established its colonies hundreds of years ago, at the height of their power and prosperity. For a long time, cities like Silene had depended on the empire. They'd taken up their religion and language, and in return, Rome had provided for them. Now, though, the empire was crumbling. There was no money to fix cisterns or bridges. They could only afford to send a few soldiers to keep order in the towns they'd once conquered. As far as George was concerned, the world would be better off without Rome. He might wear the uniform of a centurion, but he'd lost any allegiance to the empire long ago. For a long time, the only thing George had had faith in was survival. Recently, though, his faith had given him pause. He'd been traveling back to Silene when he'd stopped at a small church to ask for water. There was only one person inside, an old man in a habit of rough brown linen. He'd given George a strange look and asked if he was a Christian. George had hesitated. His parents had been Christians, but they'd been dead for a long time. He shook his head, and the monk said, you will be. George had raised an eyebrow, and the monk laughed. Then he'd said that some men yearned to know that there was more to life than killing and dying for an emperor. He'd smiled strangely and said, you'll see it too, George, once you have slain your own dragons. George had scoffed at the old man, but there was something about the words that had stuck with him. Though he presented a jaded exterior, George did want to believe in something. As he made his way down the narrow dirt road, George heard the sound of footsteps coming up behind him. He ducked out of the way, hiding himself behind a tamarisk bush, and waited for the party to pass. It was an odd group, four local guardsmen flanking an ornate sedan of carved olive wood. A young woman sat in the chair. She wore a stola of fine blue silk and a thin gold crown sat atop her black curls. She was wearing the distinctive jewelry of a bride. George frowned. He'd seen plenty of unhappy brides, but never one that looked quite so miserable. She was certainly beautiful, but there was something else about her that made it hard to tear his eyes away from her. Perhaps it was the firm set of her perfect red lips, or the anxious way that she stared at the road rising up in front of her. 
Without even realizing what he was doing, George began to follow along behind the strange party. He stepped in between trees, always keeping out of sight, but never straying too far from the girl in the chair. He followed them up a steep hill and watched as they descended into a dusty valley. The hills were lush and green, but the valley where the men had taken the girl was completely lifeless. George frowned as the girl stepped down from the sedan chair and went to stand beside a metal pole in the center of the valley. As one of the men began binding her wrist to the pole, George remembered a rumor he'd once heard about human sacrifices in this valley. If the rumors were true, what was she being sacrificed to? The entrance to a massive cave was set into the rock wall at the other end of the ravine. He'd seen Barbary lions in these hills. Perhaps one lived in the cave. Did these people think that sacrificing a young woman would appease the bloodthirsty animal? George's face flushed with anger. Whatever was waiting in that cave wouldn't lay a single claw on that woman. Not if he had anything to say about it. The guards finished tying up the girl. George waited as they hurried up the steep road leading out of the valley. As soon as they were out of sight, George climbed down to the bottom of the ravine. He called out to the girl, but as soon as she saw him, she started shaking her head and screaming. He ran up to the pole and tried to untie her, but she struggled and yelled. There's nothing you can do. It's too late for me. But if you leave now, you can still get out of here alive. For a moment, George didn't know what to do. He hadn't expected this. He caught hold of the girl's wrists and replied, I'm going to get you out of here. Whatever is coming, I can fight it. He was going to say more, but he was cut off by a sound coming from the cave. It was a low animal roar like nothing he had ever heard before. It made him think of the sound that a metal gate makes as it slammed shut in a dark prison. George's heart began to pound. Two enormous eyes peered out at him from the depths of the cave. At first he thought they belonged to an enormous snake, but as the creature stepped out of the shadowy cavern, George realized that these were the eyes of a dragon. Coming up, George must fight to stay alive. Now back to the story. George's blood ran cold as the dragon emerged from its cave. He'd heard rumors about the dragon in these hills, but he'd always thought they were fantasies or exaggerations. Even when he'd spotted the beautiful young woman being tied to a stake, he still hadn't believed that she could be a sacrifice to a dragon. Now, though, as he looked up at the enormous reptilian beast that loomed over him, he understood how wrong he had been. He should have listened to the woman and left while he still could. The dragon was taller than an oak tree. Its scales shone like polished metal shields. It stepped fully out of the cave and spread its wings. Their folds blocked out the sun entirely. 
George felt like he couldn't breathe. The dragon looked down at him and loosed a swirling jet of flame. George darted away, but the force of the heat almost knocked him over. It singed his left arm and broke the trance the beast held over him. George staggered backward and looked around. All he had with him was his javelin and a boiled leather breastplate. Even if he had a horse and full armor, he still wouldn't stand a chance against the dragon. George spotted a jagged rock on the ground. If he was going to die here, he might as well die doing something noble rather than fleeing like a coward. He picked it up and began hacking at the ropes that tied the young woman to the pole. She screamed again for him to go, but he ignored her. George cut the ropes in three swift strokes. Then he picked up his javelin and turned to face the dragon. The great beast stalked towards him with an odd grace. It crawled on all fours like a bat, using the forward parts of its wings as legs. George readied his javelin, but just when he was about to throw it, the beast opened its mouth and released another plume of flame. George threw himself out of the way. The massive pillar of flame rushed past him, melting the rocks and sand where he'd been standing. George fell hard against the ground, closing his eyes against the unbearable heat. He felt an excruciating pain in his side. His tunic was on fire. George shrieked and batted at the flames. He rolled in the dirt and managed to put them out, just as the dragon readied itself for another attack. George scrambled to his feet and aimed his javelin again. He reached back to throw it, but the dragon saw what he was doing. It lunged towards him with unnatural speed and batted the javelin away before it could leave George's hand. The javelin landed in the sand just out of George's reach. The dragon gave a great roar of fury. George fell backwards. The dragon loomed over his supine form. Its hot breath steamed into his face. A thick rivulet of drool dripped from one of its foot-long fangs, and it sizzled as it touched the earth. The dragon opened its jaws. George heard a shout from his left. Both he and the dragon looked towards the noise. The young woman was standing a few feet from them. She was unfastening the girdle from around her waist. She had already unwound several feet of the heavy silver chain. The elaborate piece of wedding attire must have been at least 10 feet long. She tossed the end of the metal belt to George. By reflex, he caught it. George looked at the belt in his hand, utterly bewildered. For a moment, he wondered if the woman had gone mad. Then she threw the other end of the girdle over the dragon's neck. Suddenly, George understood. He rolled over and seized the other end of the chain. In that moment, words from his childhood came back to him. A prayer. George repeated it as he pulled down on the two ends of the chain. The chain pulled the dragon's head down to the earth. 
George rolled out of the way as it crashed into the sandy ground. The beast gave a strangled cry. George rose to his feet. He pulled the chain tight, cutting into the dragon's massive throat. The great beast kicked against the ground. George pulled the belt tighter each time it tried to move its massive body. The dragon grew weaker as the belt pressed deeper into its neck. Finally, it gave one last exhausted wrench of its head. It collapsed against the ground. George tied the remaining length of belt to one of the charred trees. He bent over, panting and dripping sweat onto the dusty ground. He gazed in wonder at the dragon, and the monk's words came back to him. Once you have slain your own dragons. George shook his head and smiled. Maybe it was time to start believing. Just then, the young woman approached him. She spoke in a low voice. I was ready to give my life to that dragon, but you've done what all of Rome could not. What can I do to repay you? George shrugged and said, why don't we start with your name? She laughed and held out her hand. I am the Princess Cleolinda of Silene, daughter of King Jugurtha, but you can call me Cleo. The legend of St. George began with a 4th century Christian historian called Eusebius of Caesarea. Eusebius recounted the story of a Roman soldier born to wealthy Christian parents. When the Roman emperor Diocletian issued an edict against Christians, Eusebius's unnamed Roman soldier tore it up and was subsequently tortured and executed for his defiance of the emperor. Later authors would combine the sparse details from Eusebius' story with biographical details from a different George born in Cappadocia, who had been executed in 361 CE. The story of George's encounter with the dragon was not mentioned in any of the early St. George stories, and it would not gain popularity until almost a thousand years later. Originally written down in the 13th century by an Italian archbishop named Jacobus de Voragine, it has become a template for every Anglo-Saxon dragon story that followed. Though the tale is clearly set in the late Roman Empire, most illustrations and paintings presented in the context of the Crusades, St. George is usually depicted wearing the red and white cross of a crusader, a symbol that would come to be known as St. George's Cross. Framing St. George as a crusader was a sort of visual cue. It told the viewer that George was not only a Christian saint, but that he was also responsible for the spread of Christianity. He defeats the dragon through the power of the cross that he wields along with his sword, and later demands that the king and all his subjects convert to Christianity to repay his heroism. In these versions of the story, the princess is often a footnote. But with the burgeoning popularity of the courtly romance, she began to take on a more important role. In later iterations of the tale, the princess marries George following her rescue. 
Their morally acceptable union is the inverse of the corruption and sin that would have been forced upon her by the dragon. Like most medieval weddings, George's marriage to the princess is an economic arrangement. George has earned the princess as a reward for killing the dragon, much in the way he earned the conversion of the villagers. Either way, the consent of those in question is irrelevant. George, through the right of his divinely given authority, has earned their allegiance. Cleolinda watched George as he led the dragon up out of the ravine. He wore the uniform of a Roman soldier, but it was tattered and dirty, and she could see that it had been a long time since the man had had a bath. He grunted gruffly as he made his way up the rocky hillside, pulling the reluctant dragon behind him. Cleo had begged him to kill the beast there and then, but he had insisted that they bring it to Silene while it was still alive. He said he wanted to show the people what the power of Christ could do. By the time they reached the city, the dragon had become completely docile. At any hint of aggression, George pulled the girdle tighter, making it wheeze and struggle for air. Even in a state of submission, the dragon was still terrifying. As they approached the city gates, the men on the battlements dropped their weapons and ran screaming from their posts. Cleo brought them to the doors of her father's villa, where King Jugurtha was already standing, gazing in fear and bewilderment at the approaching dragon. As soon as he saw Cleo, the king fell to his knees and began to weep. She ran to him and took his hand. She had so much that she wanted to say, but as she looked into his eyes, her words fell away. Cleo embraced her father and began to sob. George addressed the kneeling monarch. King Jugurtha, I have chained the dragon that plagued this city. I alone have the power to slay it. But first you must grant me the hand of your daughter and bring your people into my faith. Will you and your citizens be baptized this day? King Jugurtha nodded and said, I will do anything. Just please kill the beast before it breaks away from your control. George gave a beatific smile. He pulled out a broadsword and began to hack away at the dragon's neck. With each blow, the dragon uttered a pitiful whimper. Cleo gazed down at the river of blood running over the paving stones. She knew that heroic deeds were often rewarded with the hand of a princess. She supposed things could be much worse. Just this morning, she had assumed that she would be dead by sunset. All her life, she had worshipped the gods of Rome, but she'd always known that these were not her gods. Her ancestors were the people that the Romans called Berbers. Long ago, they had worshipped nature spirits. Then they were conquered by the Greeks, who asked them to sacrifice at the temples of Zeus and Athena. When the Romans rose to power, they got a new set of gods. The city of Silene had worshipped foreign gods for centuries. What was one more new religion to a people who had known so many? Cleo stepped up to her future husband and told him that she would be the first 
to be baptized. For medieval Europeans, the slaying of a dragon was a sacred act of conquest. St. George is often depicted wearing the uniform of a crusader because his role was to assert the dominance of the Christian faith over all other religions. In the unforgiving eyes of medieval Christians, the dragon represents more than just sins like greed and lust. It also stands in for belief in any religion outside of Christianity. When St. George kills the dragon, he's metaphorically killing all other beliefs. Today's dragons are not the terrifying satanic demons that existed in the Middle Ages. Though they occasionally appear as antagonists, the role of modern dragons has expanded significantly. Dragons appear in children's books as cuddly animals or faithful companions. Fantasy novels tend to portray them as relics of a more ancient world, unpredictable but worthy of our awe and respect. Part of the dragon's expanding role can be seen as a move towards religious tolerance. If dragons no longer represent a fear of any religion outside of Christianity, they can return to their original role as awe-inspiring predators. After thousands of years of cultural change, dragons are the same as they always were. They're at once exhilarating, terrifying, threatening, and beautiful. Dragons horrify us in a way that is deeply ingrained in our psyches. But as with natural predators like sharks, bears, and lions, we just can't seem to tear our eyes away from their raw power. Thanks for listening to Mythical Monsters. We'll be back next week with a new episode. For more information on dragons, amongst the many sources we used, we found Fantastic Creatures in Mythology and Folklore from Medieval Times to the Present Day by Juliette Wood to be extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Mythical Monsters and all other ParCast originals for free on Spotify. Not only does Spotify already have all of your favorite music, but now Spotify is making it easy for you to enjoy all of your favorite ParCast originals, like Mythical Monsters, for free from your phone, desktop, or smart speaker. To stream Mythical Monsters on Spotify, just open the app and type Mythical Monsters in the search bar. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. I'll see you next time. Mythical Monsters was created by Max Cutler and is a ParCast Studios original. It is executive produced by Max Cutler, sound designed by Brian Golub, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Mythical Monsters was written by Zoe Louisa Lewis, with writing assistance by Greg Castro. I'm Vanessa Richardson. Hey, Parcasters, don't forget to check out the brand new Spotify original from Parcast, Incredible Feats. Join host Dan Cummins as he explores true accounts of weird, wonderful, and all-out wild achievements. New episodes premiere daily Monday through Friday. Search Incredible Feats and follow free on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts.